Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and public figures to get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is Dr. Mary Claire King. She is a professor at the University of Washington, where she teaches and studies genetics and its influence on human conditions such as breast and ovarian cancer, schizophrenia, HIV, and lupus. After getting a degree in mathematics at Carleton College, King went to Berkeley to pursue a doctorate in statistics, but a course she took early on in her studies changed the course of her career. It was the late 1960s, and genetics was an exciting new field, and Mary Claire King applied her knowledge of mathematics and statistics to solving genetic problems. But since it was also the 60s and it was also Berkeley, King became active in the growing anti-war movement on campus and even considered dropping out of her PhD program. But Dr. Alan Wilson, a Berkeley genetics professor and one of King's mentors, convinced her to stay on. King joined Wilson's lab and they started making great strides in experimental biology. King's thesis work led to a game-changing science cover article in 1975, reporting that humans and chimpanzees are 99% genetically identical. Dr. King also found that a single gene was responsible for many breast and ovarian cancers, and this discovery revolutionized the study of all sorts of human diseases. Her work in genetics has even helped identify victims of human rights abuses, like Argentinian children who had been stolen from their families and adopted illegally under the military dictatorship that ended there in 1983. Mary Claire King was recently on the IU campus to receive the Herman J. Muller Award and to give a lecture on genetics and genomics. While she was here, she joined me in the WFIU studios. Thank you for joining us on Profiles. Welcome. Thank you. Your life has been extraordinary. Your life in science has been extraordinary. And to start with, I'm just wondering if we could start more or less at the beginning. I have read that when you were young, you lost a childhood friend to cancer. Mm. That would be the obvious catalyst, I suppose, mm -hmm. for beginning your life in, mm -hmm. in science, in mathematics. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, though, what other memories, in addition to that, you might have about when you knew that this is what you want to do with your life? Oh, it's a really good question, because I'm from a generation of women who pretty much assumed that our lives would ultimately be motherhood and housekeeping, and that would be that. The loss of Debbie when we were both 15 was absolutely devastating. It made me very angry. In retrospect, what she had was Wilms tumor, and she was born with it. She had a new mutation in the critical gene, but of course that wasn't understood at the time. And I knew she wasn't well, and then I also knew that as we became 13, 14, she was very, very ill. But I didn't know she had cancer. People didn't talk about it, and I certainly didn't expect her to die. And I was completely devastated. It was not, at the moment, a turning point for me. I was too devastated to have it be a turning point. I think the motivation or the underlying context that made it easy for me to go into math and then ultimately make a transition to biology was a much happier one. When I was little, we were in Chicago, and my dad had retired. He was considerably older than my mom. And he retired when I was still very small. And so he was home all day. And he was a complete Cubs fan. And in those days, the relatively early days of TV, the Chicago 
baseball games were, despite it being early days of TV, shown from time to time when there were two home games, they would be shown as split screen. So they actually had a mechanism in you know early black and white television days of splitting the screen. Jack Brickhouse would take one side, and I cannot remember the name of his sidekick, who was the other on air. The reporter would take the other side, and they would have telephones, and they would have mics, and they would both broadcast both games simultaneously. So I would sit there on the living room floor with my dad, and we would watch these games. And he would pose little problems. So I would be six years old or so. And he would say, okay, Ernie Banks is coming up. Ernie's got a, let's say, 285 batting average so far. Um, He'll probably have three at-bats in this game. How many hits does he have to have to raise his batting average to 290? And I would look puzzled, and he said, you're right. You know, you don't have all the information you need. What else do you need to know? So I would think through, you know, are we early in the season? Are we late in the season? How many times has he been? So as a little kid, I thought that watching baseball was doing math problems. And they were really fun math problems because my dad was very good at making up these problems. So it became absolutely natural for me to just think about everything in mathematical terms from a very young age. And my brother, who's three years younger, was never a baseball fan, but much better at math than I was. But because I'd had kind of this head start, of doing math in the context of baseball, it never seemed intimidating to me. So I went all the way through undergraduate school at Carleton doing math, then went out to Berkeley and was soon bitten by the bug of genetics. It took a genetics course from Kurt Stern, who was a friend of H.J. Muller and the beginning of the whole connection that I have intellectually with Dr. Muller. So I took the genetics course from Kurt Stern the last time he taught it in the mid-60s and converted to genetics and have never looked back. Now, back to the idea mm. of the split-screen baseball game. <laughs> right. All right. I'm, I'm, Let's cut to the chase. I'm really right. tempted to make a base pair joke at this point. Oh, gosh. Like, that okay. would be a horrible pun, and that I'd never be, be forgiven that, for it. That would be well, awful. I hope a mathematician <laughs> would forgive me for drawing the following conclusion, though, which is that it seems that the seed that was planted might also have been a little bigger than math. Mm-hmm. That's where I'm going to make them mad, right. I think. Right. Is this idea of the, the known and the unknown. What part of the equation am I missing? What's the thing I still have to find out? A mathematician would probably growl at me and say, well, that's what all math is, dummy. But it seems that that sparked something else that has definitely seen you through your entire career. That's a really nice point that I don't think anyone has ever made who's talked to me about it. And I hadn't thought of it that way myself either. It's a really nice point. I have thought of it in terms of puzzle solving, but you're absolutely right that the most intriguing part of the puzzle is figuring out what you need to know. So when I say that genetics is a way of thinking, it's a way of thinking about what you still need to know, and then how do I obtain the tools to find out what I need to know? It might be good to define a couple of terms at this Mm -hmm. point, just genetics in general, Mm -hmm. and also how it's different from genomics, because these are two different terms I think often get conflated, they get mixed up a little bit. So genetics is the study of inheritance that's based in DNA, and genes are formed of DNA. And genetics encompasses inheritance one gene at a time or many genes at a time, or indeed what we call epigenetic effects, which are effects that are embedded also in DNA but that control the regulation of genes. So genetics existed as a word and a concept and an intellectual way of thinking well before we knew what the physical reality of the gene was. So genetics as a way of thinking dates from the time of Mendel, so the 1860s. He didn't use that term, but what he was referring to, as we know from his work with peas, 
was the inheritance of traits and how that's governed. Genomics is a set of tools. Genomics is a much more recent word developed, oh, I guess we started using it in the mid-90s sometime. And it refers to the capacity to understand, by dint of engineering, every base pair that is present in the complete genome, another word that we invented in the mid-90s. So every base pair that is present in the complete genetic constitution of an organism, whether that's a plant or a bacterium or a yeast or a fruit fly or a person. And genomics are the sets of tools that we use to obtain that information. When you think about the intellectual excitement in genomics, it's basically engineering and computer science and construction of new algorithms, construction of new pipelines for analysis, construction of new physical equipment. Genetics is a way of thinking and is a way of setting up these puzzles, setting up the kinds of questions that we want to address. So a person who thinks genetically is thinking about, for example, a simple question like, what makes us human? Small question like yeah, that. Yeah, just a little, right? Little just a small light question like fair that, right? Like right, that, yeah. right. And then closing in on that question a bit more: How do we differ from our closest relatives? How do we differ from chimpanzees? How do modern humans differ from Neanderthal and Denisovans, the earlier hominins? What one then does in modern genetics is say, if I want to approach that question, what genomics tools exist that I can exploit in order to address it? I think that as geneticists, we are asking the same questions that geneticists asked from the time of Mendel on, and indeed people have asked from the time that people began writing things down and thinking about things. So the questions are not new. What makes us human? What is the nature of this illness? Why do I look like my mother and father? What about behavior is learned? What about behavior is innate? Those are very fundamental questions that are formulated into testable hypotheses using genetics as a way of thinking. What separates us from the way that people address these questions even early on in my career, so this is all very recent, is that we're now in a position to answer them. We have tools that allow us to answer these questions in our own species. Good geneticists, including superb geneticists here at Bloomington, have been answering those questions in fruit flies for generations. We're now in a position to be able to answer questions in people at the same level of complexity that they have been addressed in fruit flies since the 20s. So our friends, the fruit flies. Now, mm. my exposure to them was limited to high school biology. Good biology class. <laughs> Drosophila melanogaster is the reason I still don't care very much for bananas, because <laughs> walking into that classroom every day, the bananas. smell of the banana medium in which they lived and did, well, everything else that they did, mm -hmm. permeated the room for mm -hmm. the it's month true. or so that we had our genetics unit. It's true. And Punnett squares and the rest of it. Uh -huh. So because your career has spanned this period of mm -hmm. talking about where the tools didn't exist, where there was a way of thinking before there was really a way of doing, if it's not improper mm -hmm. to say that. So take us back to closer to the beginning, closer mm -hmm. to the fruit fly days, because mm -hmm. I know that you came on board after your degrees in mathematics mm -hmm. a little bit later in the game. Mm -hmm. You weren't there totally on the ground floor. Not a bit. But no. you've seen a lot of the building <laughs> right. being constructed. Right. That's true. So what was that like back then, you had this one means of answering all these questions. Mm -hmm. How are some of the first scientists trying to convert genetics from a way of thinking into a way of actually... Of answering? Of answering, yes. Yeah. Um, the thing about any 
field of intellectual endeavor, I think, is that at the time you enter it, you know what tools there are. And so to some extent, you are constrained in the kinds of questions you can approach by the tools. It's not that you are constrained in imagining additional tools, but you do what you can with what you have. When I began working in genetics in the 60s with Dr. Stern originally, fruit fly genetics was already very nicely established, and you could answer many profound questions with flies. And the underlying structure of genetics is such that, I mean, in the 60s, it it had only been a few years that actually the structure of the gene had been understood, and molecular biology was just growing up. And the understanding of how genes are structured was building very fast. So it wasn't that we thought of it as primitive at all. We thought of it as very exciting and as a context in which one could address important questions of development and important questions of variation. The capacity to do that in people at that time was severely limited. Human genetics in the 60s, indeed human genetics until extremely recently, was largely descriptive based on symptoms. Whereas with organisms with which one could experiment, we could actually address the question of what's the basis of this explicit condition. What's different now is that we can, even though obviously we are not an experimental organism as a species, we can nonetheless learn all about the genome of an individual. We can learn so much about this in people that the fact that we can't experiment is no longer, it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant. So I think that it's always been an exciting field because it's always been a field in which if you can formulate a hypothesis, you can tackle a way of trying to address it. And what's changed is our capacity to do that with ourselves and to do that at a very complete level. So that these very difficult questions, like what is the basis of this complex disease? What is the basis of why we're human? Are questions that we can hope to have some substantive answers to. You're listening to Profiles. From WFIU, I'm Aaron Kane. My guest today is geneticist Mary Claire King. I think it's probably not the right word. Mm. Maybe fell in love is better, but for some reason, the word seduced comes to mind Mm -hmm. when I think about the part of your life when you went from graduating from Carleton College with your degree in mathematics, Mm -hmm. you go to Berkeley Mm -hmm. to continue studies in statistics, if I'm Mm -hmm. not mistaken. Right, correct. And then you fall in with the genetics crowd, Mm -hmm. essentially. uh, Dr. Alan Wilson brought you over to this field, to genetics. What was that like, that pivot point? What was the moment when you went? Because the reason that this I find so fascinating is that looking at your career, it absolutely needed to go the way it did. <laughs> You're very kind. If, if I may say so, You're because very... the work that you did in mathematics, the exacting way mm-hmm. of looking at things, I'm sure we'll touch on this later, putting the pieces together, mm-hmm. I don't think it's overstating things to say that bringing that skill set to the field really changed the field. So let's you know set the Wayback Machine to arriving at Berkeley right. and making that change from the math person to the genetics right. person. So the great advantage of doing math 
however far one can take it, and my limit was really through an undergraduate degree, is that once one has tackled problems in math, nothing is daunting anymore. It is fundamentally the hardest thing there is because you are always pushing the envelope beyond what you know. It's just the nature of it. It's inherently difficult. Using it may or may not be difficult, but certainly it completely prepares one for any other intellectual activity. I knew I wasn't good enough at math to be a professional mathematician, particularly since I had a younger brother who was a whole lot better, and clearly so. I mean, he's very sweet about it, but there's no question he's a whole lot better. I mean, he did his PhD in math at MIT and was an academic mathematician for years. I went to Berkeley thinking I would do statistics, which is a very useful tool of mathematics and can be applied to real problems. And in the course of doing that, in my first year, it was suggested to me by my advisor, Dr. Urashalmi, a very fine statistician, that I take Kurt Stern's genetics course because I'd had very little biology. And Dr. Stern was teaching it for the last time. So I took it just for fun. And you're right, I just fell in love with it. Dr. Stern lectured every day at one o'clock. And I would I had another class just before, so I would always get there just in time. And I would sit right in the front row so I could make sure I didn't miss anything. And he was he was very soft-spoken and still had a bit of a German accent. And I remember thinking as the class went on, it's just astonishing to me that people get paid to do this. It is it is so elegant. It is so pretty. And of course, a lot of it was that Dr. Stern was so good at explaining it that it was just one puzzle after another after another. I asked him, I talked to Dr. Yerushalmi, I talked to Dr. Stern, I said, would it be possible to transfer to genetics? And they said, well, of course, you just go tell the genetics department that you're going to show up. I mean, it was very casual in those days. But also, this was Berkeley in the 60s. So this was- I was going to ask, there was yeah. more than little going on Oh, yeah, then. yeah. And I was, and everyone was part of it, including me. <laughs> and Dr. Stern knew very well, having come from Germany as a young man and having been in America already at the time of the rise of the Nazis, but of course, having family and friends back in Germany still, he knew everything about that period. And he knew what it was like to deal with a very difficult situation in terms of one's local government. So as the Vietnam War protests developed in the late 60s, he was a great help. He was very quiet very unassuming, never tried to direct us in one way or another, but he would just tell us stories about how to keep intellectual life alive, how to keep a university alive, even if the governance of the state, which at that point was Regan, he was governor of California, are trying to inhibit doing things properly. It was a very challenging period, and I was, as you might imagine, part of a group that organized you know, a very geneticist way of looking at problems. I suppose our our most successful single act during this period was, it was some years into it, at the time of the Cambodian invasion. So you remember during the Vietnam War, there was a time when Johnson decided the war would extend over into Cambodia, and they invaded Cambodia. And we, as graduate students in genetics, organized ourselves just on the weekend, the invasion was, if I remember correctly, a Friday night or a Saturday, to go to all the churches and synagogues. And many of us had grown up in churches or synagogues, but hadn't been active for years, to ask people to write letters saying what they thought about this activity. And so, you know, we put on our nice dresses, and the guys found their suit coats, and off we went to all the surrounding churches and synagogues met again back in the student room in the genetics department and had with us something like 3,000 letters. 
And so we were looking at all these letters, and they were all properly addressed and handwritten by people that we'd contacted all over the region. And we realized we had no stamps. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, this was pre-8 Mountain. You know, we had to physically send these letters. So one of my fellow students' mom worked for Charles Schultz of Peanuts. Charles M. Schultz. Charles M. Schultz, the very person. So she called her mom, and her mom called Mr. Schultz, and Mr. Schultz said, he was based in Marin, we were over in Berkeley, he said, just bring the letters over here and run them through our franking machine. So he paid for all our postage to send the letters back to Washington, and we did, and needless to say, I'm a great fan of peanuts, and was before, and was even more after. But all of this was going on in parallel with trying to get a degree. It was a real challenge for me, both because having come out of math, I did not have good hands experimentally, and I never have had great hands for experiments. And also because the university was open, the university was closed, it was a challenging time to work. I was really discouraged and dropped out for a short time to work for Ralph Nader, because Ralph Nader decided to have one of his projects on who owns California and what are they doing with it, basically. So I was the biologist on that project, enjoyed that work enormously. I was allowed to pick whatever projects I wanted to work on, and I decided to work on forestry practices and on health effects of pesticides in farm workers. This was also the time of Cesar Chavez and the Organization right. of Farm Workers. And the project on pesticide effects on farm workers was particularly important, and I wrote a good piece on it for the California Natives Raiders book. Ralph asked me if I'd come east and work on the development of, of his organization that became the NATO organization back east. And I was tempted to do that. And then Alan Wilson really changed my mind. I hadn't been able to get anything to work in the lab where I had been, which was not yet Alan's lab. It was another, it was an excellent lab, but but not his. And he said, you really should finish through your PhD because in order to control the agenda, you need to have a PhD to be able to pursue these issues the way you want to pursue them rather than working for someone else. And I said, I can't get experiments to work. (laughs) I try works well. All the best advice in the world isn't helping. And he said, look, if everybody whose experiments failed stopped doing science, nobody would be doing science. Let's see if we can develop a project that is not overwhelmingly challenging experimentally and that allows you to use your capacity to write equations. And we did develop such a project. It was not overwhelming experimentally. It was this question of how do humans and chimpanzees differ using the tools available at the time. What we would do was we had access through friends who were working with primates, either in zoos or in primate centers. We had access to blood from chimpanzees. They would obtain blood from chimpanzees, small amounts, of course, send it to us. This was before anyone was working with DNA, so we were working with proteins. And so what I would do was compare blood from several dozen different chimpanzees, to blood from people, my friends who had given me small amounts of blood. And I would compare the size and charge of different proteins. And that was possible in those days using a then new technique called electrophoresis, which means that one determines how proteins move through a gel. The gel can be made of anything resembling jello. So it can be a, an agar-like substance like jello, can be starch, but anything that's like a gel. And if you apply a charge at one end of this gel and a charge at the other end of this gel, uh, molecules move through it, and they move through it at different speeds depending on whether they are small or big. So how do you measure that? Well, you turn on your charge for 20 minutes or something, and your molecules move along. Of course, you can't see them. You can see hemoglobin because it's red, but you can't see anything else. 
So you need to have a stain that will allow you to visualize the subsets of the blood that you want to see. And those stains were being developed by a woman I came to know later in my life very well, named Elo Giblet up in Seattle, but I didn't know her at the time at all. But she wrote this very elegant book about how to do this called Genetic Markers in Human Blood. So I used it. I had Elo Giblet's book at school, and I would follow her recipes, and that's what they were for how to stain, how to create stains that would allow you to exploit the fact that you knew what the enzyme was that you were trying to stain for, and it was somewhere in the blood. You just couldn't see it because it was colorless. But you could bring out a color by using a stain that would attach a dye to the end product of the enzyme reaction. So you could visualize one enzyme after another. And she wrote it so clearly that even I, clumsy that I was, could manage this. I, I used to tell my friends I have Eagle Giblet's book at school. I have Julia Child's book at home. You know, I'm all set. Right? So, so what does it actually look like when you're looking at the end result? Back in those days, back in those days, what it looked like was a series of bands in typically purple against a white background. Bands. The, bands. Just like little stripes of little purple. Little stripes. Okay. Yeah. A few little stripes of each sort. Then later on, people, instead of using these colored dyes, used radioactive dyes because it was more precise than Still later, it was possible to do this actually by sequencing. So I, you know, everyone of my age in genetics will have lived this entire transition. And, of course, needless to say, we tease our students about not having to do all this. And in so my day. Yeah. I know. In our day, oh, we made our own starch. We made our own gels. We <laughs> flooded our own floors. It's all true. Now, if this were Hollywood, mm. I would be saying that your work with chimpanzees was your breakout role, probably. <laughs> Nice. Yeah, that they're 99% identical. Mm -hmm. I think this is something that is still so captivating. Mm -hmm. I think I read somewhere that there are fraternal species of mice that That's have right. less in common That's right. than we That's do true. with, like, say, the bonobo chimpanzee. Oh, much. So yes. what was it like when you broke this news? What right. kind of reaction did you get? Well, of course, in the Wilson lab, we knew this. We were absolutely evidence-based in the Wilson lab. It was a little island of evolutionary biology tackling these very difficult questions. So we totally believed in our data. Within that lab, one was very critical of one's own data and each other's data. But once you were convinced it was correct, and it took years, you were prepared to defend it to the death to the outside world. So what Alan and I confronted, this was the early 70s, was the reality that here, all my experiments, at first, of course, I thought I couldn't see differences and it was me and I didn't know how to detect differences and it was because I have bad hands and all that. And it wasn't me. I mean, there weren't differences. We used several methods that were independent of each other, orthogonal to each other, to tackle the same question. The electrophoresis that I've told you about, there were a few proteins that had been sequenced, like three or four. We had that information. We could compare DNA in bulk, not by sequence, but you could compare DNA to see how similar it was or how different it was from a DNA of your baseline species. In this case, we used human as baseline species. Uh, and you could do that by differences in um, you stick the DNA together. You take double-stranded DNA, turn it into single-stranded DNA, allow it to re-anneal to double-stranded DNA. So you see, unzip it and re-zip it yeah, elsewhere. Exactly. Okay. And then see how warm you could heat it before it started to come apart. And what did that tell you? It didn't tell you anything by itself. Oh. <laughs> but then you do the same thing with one strand of human DNA and one strand of chimpanzee DNA. And you didn't have to heat that DNA as warm to make it come apart. Almost as warm. But if you compared human DNA, say, to mouse DNA, 
obviously the humans and mice are very different. You didn't have to heat it as far. So we could compare mouse to mouse, human to chimp, and so on. So it was obviously independent from all this electrophoresis I was telling you about. And we got exactly the same results. So I, I mean, I was forced to believe in my data just because it was replicated by other approaches. All that said, we still had the reality that sibling species of mice live quite similar lives. Humans and chimpanzees do not live similar lives. Right. And further, sibling species of mice have very similar lengths of bones, and one can quantify that, whereas humans and chimpanzees have very different lengths of bones. And you can make the same arguments about morphology. So in terms of anatomy and morphology and behaviors, humans and chimpanzees obviously have similarities, but are nowhere near as similar as sibling species of mice which have actually more differences than we do from chimpanzees. So that led Alan and me to state the hypothesis that the reason for this paradox was that the differences between humans and chimpanzees that have led to our differing so much in anatomy and morphology and way of life are not the accumulation of many individual changes in protein sequences, because there weren't many, but instead were individual mutations that would change, as we put it, the timing and mode of expression of genes. So what we now call regulatory changes. We did not have the tools to find those in those days. We didn't have the tools to look at DNA yet. So it was just a hypothesis. That's all it was. But we said, we suggest that in order to understand the critical points in human evolution, it will be important to look for changes that, regardless of the nature of the change, change when genes are turned on and off during development. And Alan died, tragically, of leukemia when he was in his 50s in 1991. So he didn't live to see the end of the Human Genome Project, let alone the chimpanzee genome being sequenced. But when both the human and the chimpanzee were ultimately sequenced, the human in the mid to late 90s and the chimpanzee a few years later, what we said was validated. Humans and chimpanzees are very similar. And now the, the search for what makes us human is being carried out, not by me, but by many friends, in a way that really does address this question of what is it about regulation of gene expression that differs between these species. So we set up the hypothesis. We addressed as much of it as we could with the tools of the time. And then some people, like Savante Pavo, who was a postdoc with Alan shortly after I finished my degree, Savante has really, he has become the Alan Wilson of the next generation. He has really addressed those questions of human evolution superbly. He's based at the Max Planck in Europe. And I've, of course, moved in a very different direction. Mary Claire King, professor of genetics at the University of Washington. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. You've used a word a lot in the last couple of minutes that, if I may, I'm going to mm, ask you to, sure. to unpack and and actually come to think of it, unpack as a metaphor that might be kind of cute in context, and that is sequence, sequence. Uh, which seems to be in the world of genetics both a noun and a verb. Correct. Could you walk us through the word sequence right. and what it means here? Right. Good question. So sequence is used in the general English sense of meaning the ordering of 
items of the same class in a meaningful way. So, for example, we have a sequence of base pairs, base pairs being DNA nucleotides, along a gene, and then extending that along a chromosome. And then there will be multiple chromosomes in the cell and therefore multiple sequences that make up chromosomes. So that's the sequence of DNA. We can also have sequence of proteins, which, as the name suggests, are order delineations of, in this case, amino acids, each amino acid being encoded by three DNA base pairs. So a sequence can be used in the way that we would use the term in everyday English to mean ordering of DNA, ordering of RNA, that is the base pairs of RNA that are transcribed from DNA, or ordering of amino acids. So if you think of a ladder, say, those are the rungs, like the rungs are uh, in yes. a sequence. So yes. the, the order of rungs, uh, you would, mm-hmm. that's the noun part of sequence. Right. So, but if you're sequencing a gene, if you're sequencing if a gene, a it verb, means you're determining what that sequence is. Oh, so you're basically finding the rungs and the isolating yeah. them, mm-hmm. right? You're figuring out, okay. You, you don't need to isolate them, although you can. You can do this with pieces of DNA without isolating them one by one. So the the sequencing of a gene, then, you have mm-hmm. to find them, you have to sequence them. There mm-hmm. seems to be a kind of a, a hierarchy in the detective story mm-hmm. right. of genes. And, right, uh, fair enough. And there's one gene in particular that's figured greatly in your career, and mm-hmm. that's a little guy named BRCA1. Right. Now, I'm not a numerologist, right? but it seems as if the number 17 has also been very important <laughs> right. in your life because it lives on a chromosome Chromosomal that is 17. number 17. Good enough. And it took you 17 years. Well, that's true. I hadn't realized. It's true. It's, it uh, is a coincidence. To, to quote unquote, <laughs> right. locate it. Right. To fully, right. well, unpack it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we didn't get there in a straightforward way, though, because you graduated. You got your degree mm-hmm. from Berkeley. And then you were going to go to South America. Mm-hmm. You're going to teach there. Mm-hmm. So how did that come about? Oh, okay. So this this has nothing to do with BRCA1 or, or Oh, well, this is, this, this is the road, too. It. Yeah. 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 It was, as you say, a circuitous route. Um, my my then husband and I decided that he was already on the faculty at Berkeley. I was finishing my degree with Alan, and we decided to take advantage of a remarkable and terrific program that existed between the University of California and the Universidad de Chile, sponsored by the Ford Foundation. And the nature of the program was that graduate students or postdocs, or postdoc wasn't a term being used yet, but essentially what we now call postdocs, and faculty at one institution, either Universidad de Chile or University of California, who wished to go to the other institution could just do it. It was just terrific. If you were a Berkeley faculty member, you could become a faculty member at the University of Chile in Santiago, and there was a place to stay, and you'd settle in and teach classes comparable to what you would be teaching at Berkeley, and the reverse was also true. So we did that. My then-husband was, an, in fact, still is an ecologist. And so to work in Chile was perfect for such a field because the west coast of South America is topographically, in many ways, just like the west coast of North America flipped over, huh. right? I mean, you start... You start oh, sure, it makes sense, actually. <laughs> exactly, right. Vancouver to Baja is just like uh, the Peruvian border down to Tierra del Fuego flipped over. But because, of course, these land masses have been separated for a very, very long time, different kinds of ecological communities have developed. So I mean, one thing that's kind of obvious as soon as somebody even as naive as me begins to work in this area is that in the northern hemisphere along the west coast, we have many, many mammals. I mean, we have squirrels, we have chipmunks, we have, you name it, we've got a small mammal. In South America, lizards do mammal jobs. 
right? Or as or as a Latin American biologist would say, in North America, mammals do lizard jobs. Sure, sure, yeah. Right? But same jobs get done. You know, same communities get done. So my then husband and his students found this a fascinating place to work, and I enjoyed going with them. But my job was really to teach in other areas, statistics, population genetics, and so on. We were there before and during the coup on September 11th of 1973, and the university was, of course, closed. We were able to take our students out of the city, which was very important, and just drive as much of the length of the country as we could cover, which was a lot. And we left on Christmas Day of 73. Uh, a, a number of our students had not survived. We were able to help other students leave. And I remained interested in human rights work in Latin America ever after. I mean, one very, very small consequence of leaving as abruptly as we did was that I didn't have a job when I came back to Berkeley. The convenio was terrific, and if you had a job at Berkeley, you had it when you came back. So my then-husband, of course, just moved right back to his job. That was fine. But we had planned to be there considerably longer, so I had not lined up yet a job to come back to. I'd finished my PhD, but I didn't have anything else set up. I found an ad to uh, be what we would now call a postdoc. At the time, it was called a research scientist at UC San Francisco, which is the medical school corresponding to UC Berkeley. And it was in the group of a lovely oncologist named Nicholas Petrakis, who was interested in the causes of breast cancer. And he offered me a position essentially sight unseen. I mean, my, I'd published very well off my dissertation, but I knew nothing about anything. This is a whole new area. Oh, completely new, yeah. And he welcomed me anyway, introduced me to his friends who were oncologists and surgeons working in the breast cancer area, and put in my mind this idea that the clustering of breast cancer in families, which had been demonstrated since the 19th century, indeed, you can find it in the writings of Herodotus. He describes families with a lot of breast cancer. But it had been shown structurally in the 1860s by Paul Broca, then by Jane Lane Claypon in the 1920s. So it was very well established that breast cancer clusters in families more than one would expect by chance. And the question of whether that could be due to inherited mutation was a totally open question. So he. I feel like I should jump in at this point yeah. because this was, if I'm not mistaken, at the time, a novel notion. Oh, yeah. Because wasn't yeah. breast cancer research in the 70s more about studying viruses like Epstein Barr or hepatitis mm -hmm. B? That these are the things that they were focusing right. on. Right. And the idea that it was instead looking from generation to generation at inherited genetic mutations, that this was novel. That's true. The very fine experimental work at that time was on the link between virology and cancer. So the existence of viruses which were oncogenic in one form of vertebrate or another, for example, the Rouse sarcoma virus in chickens, had been beautifully delineated by excellent virologists. The idea that viruses might cause human cancer, which has since been confirmed for some cancers, sure. like cervical cancer right. and Kaposi's sarcoma and so on, was of great interest. And the people like Mike Bishop and Harold Varmus were doing absolutely brilliant molecular biology on viral, what we now call viral sequences, on viruses that had been transposed in whole into mammalian genomes. And those became known as oncogenes in the sense that if they went mutant, they were activated and they caused cancer in that cell. So it was a very different model 
than what I was thinking about, which was inherited from human generation to human generation. They were talking about changes that happened in cells in an already existing organism, an existing person. And I was thinking about one generation to another. They were not inherently in conflict, although my way of thinking, here's this, you know, one population geneticist from Berkeley, this girl thinking about this, was, believe me, not mainstream. One thing I've always thought is that I had a tremendous advantage in not being mainstream. I was protected by having a very nice job, very nice boss, to just think about things the way I needed to think about things. I didn't have to compete for space in the marketplace. In those days, NIH grants were very small, but more than 7% of people applying for grants got them, partially because they were smaller. So if you wrote a nice little grant, you would get a nice little grant. And I could think about it carefully and accumulate evidence in the Wilson lab model, which was really, really carefully, over a long period of time. That's much more difficult for people to do now. Partly, probably largely, the reason I was able to do this is that nobody paid much attention to a very young woman who was coming in from left field. Yeah, not to hijack this too much, but didn't you have your own unique experience along the lines of the glass ceiling? I guess call it the glass pipette, where (laughs) you've written that there were advantages to not being taken particularly seriously as a scientist in that you were left to your own device and you can get some things done. You can get some things done, right. You're not being pulled into professional paths. You, you can just get things done. And a number of women in the older generation from me said the same thing, that being left alone is a great blessing. It, obviously, there are downsides. Duh. Certainly. But, but now it's not true because now everybody gets pulled into professional roles. And indeed, young women can be spread so thin because institutions are so eager to have a woman on every committee. And one very important thing for young women to learn to do now is just say no. It's also extremely important to just say yes if the question that one wishes to address is, you know, is offered to one in a constructive and substantive way. But one should just say yes to science and just say no to administration as often as possible. And that applies to anybody, but it's particularly a problem for young women because there are still disproportionately fewer of them and they are asked to be on everything and they should just say no to a huge amount of it. And no is respected as an answer. People often don't think it is. If you say no right off the top and you're consistent in no to something you just don't have time to do, it's fine. You won't be dissed for it. It's fine. But that wasn't a problem for me. Nobody noticed I existed. So I just kept doing my my small thing. I shouldn't say nobody. I mean, my boss's friends knew very well I existed. And these gentlemen, and they were to a person gentlemen, who were surgeons, were introducing me to families that had multiple cases of breast cancer. And it was up to me to figure out why. And And it took a long time. That's Genetics is a way of thinking about an obviously clinical problem. Nowadays, that same process is completely direct because we have the human genome sequence. So what took me 17 years to prove the existence of, and then that opened a race that was four years in duration to actually clone the gene that I named BRCA1, that entire 21-year process would now be one rotation of 10 weeks for a new graduate student because we have the tools, because we have genomics. It's an extraordinary difference. So the approach that I used, which we call linkage analysis, perfectly legitimate approach, mathematically based. One has to have a reasonable amount of experimental data to make it work. But one obtained that data in very painstaking ways in those days. You were 
correct way describing what that process involves, which is localization and closing in in the right neighborhood and so on. We don't need to do that anymore because now as soon as you have a bit of sequence, if you have 30 base pairs of DNA sequence, you can, and I mean you, it doesn't have to be me, anyone can take that sequence, open up a public website on the internet, a browser, there are several competing browsers, but they're all public, and you can enter your little sequence and you can find out exactly what chromosome that's on. This seems sort of like the equivalent of using Google Maps. You have an address and you type it in and you can go right to the right spot. I got to tell you that the human genome sequence maps are much better than the Google Maps. (laughs) Much better. Ours Ours are updated more frequently. They make fewer errors. Google has a few things to learn from human genome sequence maps. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. My guest today is geneticist Mary Claire King. You don't strike me as the reductionist sort, and no, I could not. be just getting it wrong anyway, right. but is it overstating things to say that you found the breast cancer gene? Well, there are multiple breast cancer genes, any one of which can go wrong by mutation in a patient. And of course, some people have these mutations only in their cells, and some people have these mutations inherited. I was concerned with the inherited ones. I certainly found the first breast cancer gene, BRCA1. She is the oldest sister of all the other genes, not, of course, in the real sense of her own age, but in the sense of having been discovered by people. And then BRCA2 was discovered very shortly thereafter, and then there are now a couple of dozen of these. You have described the study of breast cancer Mm -hmm. as a fable. That's a fable about how everything that can go wrong probably has and will again soon. Right. And this just reminds me of, I guess, a buzzword you hear a lot these days, interdisciplinary. I wonder whether or not that word has any meaning for you because your work seems to have always been so interdisciplinary. And one example takes us back to what you said earlier about being interested in human rights. Mm-hmm. There's a notion that, I'll put it this way, um, you know, when you watch Raiders of the Lost Ark, you'd be forgiven for thinking that it's far-fetched mm-hmm. to have this guy who is mm-hmm. an archaeologist also, you know, swinging around and, and saving damsels and, and, <laughs> and fighting damsels, Nazis, right. you know, right. and, 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 and <laughs> right. doing good. Right. But using breast cancer research and genetics, this way of thinking in human rights work might also seem, well, that's, how do you do that? They mm-hmm. seem like they're not so related, but they were absolutely related in your case. So tell us about that. Well, genetics is really is a way of thinking, and certainly breast cancer per se and identifying kidnapped grandchildren per se are two completely independent applications of that way of thinking, but it's still a way of thinking. And just in the same way that learning how the inheritance of one change in one gene sequence from a parent to a daughter can radically change her risk of breast cancer is conceptually the same. It's still genetics as a way of thinking in comparing humans and chimpanzees. It's just a much shorter time frame. So it was the same idea that led me to say yes when the grandmothers of the Plaza de Mayo asked me in 1983 if I would come to Argentina and help them work out an approach to identifying their kidnapped grandchildren who had been 
either infants born in captivity after their young mothers had been kidnapped while pregnant or prelingual infants seized at the same time as their parents. The parents, in virtually all cases, murdered. And the infants kept inside the military subculture of Argentina, having been established and having um, flourished under Perón, who had invited at the end of World War II the uh, defeated Nazis from Germany and Italy to come to Argentina. Of course, a very well-known story. And the uh, military of Argentina had built up from the late 40s into the 70s at the time of their coup, which Chilean coup was 73, the Argentinian coup was 75 different individuals involved, of course, but the same underlying philosophy that they imposed military rule, which was brutal and disappeared many people, including young people and including directly or indirectly infants. So the the grandmothers of these infants, who were the mothers of the disappeared young adults, formed themselves in 77 to demand the return of their grandchildren. And as the dictatorship wore on, they accumulated more and more circumstantial evidence about where children that they had every reason to believe were kidnapped victims were, that is, the households in which they were found. So they had an idea. They had many ideas. They had ideas about individual children, often because a child would show up in a household where there had not previously been a child and there had never been a pregnant woman. A child would be brought to a kindergarten and be registered with an obviously phony birth certificate. They had very sensible ideas. The challenge, of course, was collecting all that information in the middle of a totalitarian dictatorship. How do you prove it? Exactly. So what they needed me for was how do you prove it? And they were referred to me by, I mean, I I only learned later the whole series of links by which they were referred to me. But there had been, as you might expect, Argentinian physicians who had, of course, had to leave Argentina because they were chased out or they were in prison. And some of them had landed in America. One in particular person I became very good friends with, Victor Pinchasada, Argentinian, went to New York and was a liaison with the grandmothers. And he became close to the person running the blood center in New York. And all of them became close to the human rights branch of the people who publish Science Magazine, the American Association for Advancement of Science. Those folks knew about my work in Chile and that I was comfortable in teaching in Spanish. I had worked in southern South America. I was, of course, a human rights-oriented person from my work there. And they, through the grandmothers, first asked through a friend of mine, a very senior geneticist named Luca Cavalli-Sforza, help them with the mathematics of the challenge that they confronted. And then they asked if I would come down to Buenos Aires and work out what... (laughs) What I naively thought would be a single visit of solidarity turned into a 30-year collaboration. But we did it, and we were able to bring the tools to bear that were exactly the tools that were needed. The tools evolved over time, and it became both a way of identifying and restoring children in Argentina, a way of identifying our own American missing in action, an approach that is now used routinely in human rights work, routinely in forensics, the unknown soldier from the Vietnam War was identified this way. The czar and his family were identified this way. So it's a matter of developing tools to address a critical question, always relying on genetics as the way of thinking about how to phrase that question. The main things that I learned from this, I learned two things. First is that the most important questions are developed by the people on the ground. The grandmothers came to me with a question. I didn't go to them and tell them what question they ought to be asking. They came to me. And the second thing I learned is that the most righteous projects 
demand the most rigorous science. This was not a situation in which you could make a mistake. I mean, you could make a mistake in your own lab, but you had to catch it yourself because the consequences, the public political consequences of allowing a mistake to be learned publicly were terrible. So I was doing all this at the time that I was trying to clone PRC1. So it all, everything kind of converged in the sense of tool development. But obviously, the projects are substantively completely independent. You are a living, breathing commercial for the importance of science. Thanks. <laughs> I think... just Well, based just on what you said, you know, right. the, in a way, the stakes the are stakes always are that high, high yeah, uh, whether high. or not it refers to that specific circumstance. And what I think is extraordinary, we live in times when, how to put it, let's just say charitably that the role of science is going through a popular reevaluation, mm-hmm. let's say. Mm-hmm. It's not every job it seems, where what you have to do day in and day out is subject to such radical change Mm -hmm. because of advances in the field. Mm -hmm. I think if everyone thought of their jobs and imagined, okay, imagine next year your job is completely different because Mm -hmm. of an advance, Mm -hmm. and then the year after that it's completely different again. So with that in mind, I realize there's probably nothing about genetics that doesn't excite you. But as we said earlier, since you saw so much of this building mm-hmm. being constructed, right, right. what really excites you looking forward? Right. Well, several things. First, moving the breast cancer work into the public health domain. It has moved actively into the clinical domain, obviously not by me. I mean, I'm, I'm there waving the flag and being a cheerleader, but my clinical colleagues are actually doing the work. Moving the breast cancer work into the public health domain so that every woman has the opportunity to learn her BRCA1 and BRCA2 sequences when she's 30 or so. In terms of new areas of work, I've become interested in the last few years in severe mental illness, and in particular in schizophrenia. The genetic way of thinking about that is a bit different than the way of thinking about any of the previous projects I've worked on, because in this case, for a variety of reasons, One is drawn to the hypothesis that schizophrenia is very often caused by genetic mutation, but by de novo genetic mutation. Meaning? Meaning that if you speak to psychiatrists who care for people who are schizophrenic, everyone agrees that schizophrenia is familial in the sense that a person who is schizophrenic, if they have children, is much more likely to have an affected child than you or I. On the other hand, Psychiatrists will tell you that the great majority of their patients with schizophrenia have no schizophrenia in their backgrounds, in their families, that most of these cases occur, as one would say, out of the blue. And it is further true that this is a condition that you can describe anywhere in the world, and people will know exactly what you're talking about. So this is not something that we see that's radically different in its frequency from one place to another. It's also true that people who are ill with schizophrenia are much less likely to have children than people who are well, not for biological reasons, but for social reasons. Mm -hmm. They withdraw from society. So given all this, what makes sense? And one thing that seemed to me and to my friends a few years ago to make excellent sense was the idea that schizophrenia might frequently be caused by mutations that occur very early in embryonic development that are compatible with life and that are compatible with superficially normal birth, but that are not compatible with long-term brain development. So that as the individual grows older, the fact that there have been 
molecular deficits in brain development become apparent when they reach the age of 1820, when basically when a different suite of genes becomes much more active in the brain. So the hypothesis was that we should see either more or different or both um, new, that is de novo, mutations in genes critical to brain development in people who are ill compared to people who are not. And that's testable nowadays. We had to do it twice because we first tested this hypothesis in about 2008 with the tools that were available then, and it was it was true. And then we tested it again, published it. We started immediately with new tools as they became available, and, and we're able to do a much more detailed analysis that we published now. Oh, gosh, it's been forever, five years ago in 2013, using sequencing tools. And now we're testing yet the same hypothesis in, in yet a a better way using complete genomic sequencing tools. So the capacity to test such a hypothesis becomes more and more detailed, and one can capture more and more classes of important mutations. But in this case, our hypothesis remained the same. I mean, how can we explain schizophrenia given its clinical and epidemiologic realities, and does a genetic model fit that? And our answer was yes that what we have is a mutational model that happens in all organisms all the time. But in the case of schizophrenia, the survival of the occasional unfortunate individual mutation through development to birth, still survival. This is not a neural tube defect. This is something in the brain that is masked by the critical gene not needing to be expressed in full flowering until later in life. So it was a good hypothesis. It was correct hypothesis. It's changed the paradigm of how people think about schizophrenia, and we're trying the next step. This next step makes me think of the old TV playing the Cubs game in split screen. Oh, good for it, you. It sounds like you've got yet another puzzle mm. that you're probably, I mean, I have a hunch, let's say, that you're going to get there. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a delight, and I've learned a lot. And thank you so much for joining us. I've had a fabulous time in Bloomington. The University of Indiana is a national treasure. It really is. I'm honored to have been invited to give an H.J. Muller lecture. It's been a joy to meet the students and young professors here. And I wish you all the very best of success, and there is no doubt in my mind that you will have it. I've been speaking with Dr. Mary Claire King, professor of genetics at the University of Washington. I'm Aaron Kane. Thanks for listening. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles. Profiles.